Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What is happening with you today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? Today is another first class day. Ooh, we're going classy today, huh? I think we're going classy today because we are talking to Martin Papa, who, yes, he has a podcast, History of Five Songs. Pantheon Podcast. We got to salute the Pantheon Podcast family member, Martin Popoff. However, we wanted to speak to him today because he has a fabulous new book. It's a coffee table book, first of all. It's a big, massive undertaking. It's called Bowie at 75. What Martin has done, taken 75 significant moments in Bowie's lifetime. He had to whittle it down to 75 because, of course, there's been a lot. But we did disagree on a few things, so this will be a good podcast chat. No, it's really a pleasure to talk to Martin because he is a, a huge music fan. He is like the Stephen King of music. He's turning one after the other. But this one really caught our attention, of course, because it's David Bowie, one of our favorites. Holly, tell them where they can find some Martin Popoff <laughs> talk. You will find some of our talk on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast and other outtakes on our other social media at WDDIM Podcast. Let's just get into it with Martin Popoff. Sounds great. Okay, so this is Martin Popoff, he of the book Bowie at 75, and we're going to be talking about it right now on the What Difference Does It Make Podcast. Hey. Hey, Martin. How are you? Good, good. All right. There's yeah, our fellow sister podcaster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw that you were from originally the West Coast of Canada. Have you been in Toronto? Was it for music? And have you been there all your adult life? Yeah. Well, born in Castlegar, BC, raised in Trail, BC, which is the interior. It's eight hours in uh, from the coast, but it, it's still British Columbia. Been here since about 89. Did a BA and an MBA and, and worked a business job for Xerox and then worked, did that in Vancouver, transferred to Toronto, ended up quitting fairly soon, started a little business. So we were doing that and then got, got into the rock and roll thing around 94. So I'm not, I'm not that, I don't go way, way back. I started basically in 94. My first book was in 93, started with a magazine in 94, started interviewing rock stars in 94. Oh, wow. Cause I was going to ask, well, how does a, a kid from as you say, the interior, get into rock like that. Where do you get your music? Where do you find it? 
Yeah, well, I was I was a crazy rock expert fan since about 11 years old. So in Trail BC, in, in this small town, we found out about it through Circus Cream and Hit Parader. And then our, our big city to buy everything with the legendary, legendary record stores was Spokane. So that's only two hours and 15 minutes directly south from Trail. Trail's pretty much on the border. There were all the iconic hippie record stores there like eucalyptus and strawberry jams and magic mushrooms and all that stuff my fondest <laughs> memories were you know all the new wave of british heavy metal stuff there all the imports the singles you know with patches in them and stuff like that and that's where you would get sounds magazine and then kerrang magazine do you think it's the weather that attracts people to to metal or, or something i don't i'm trying to i've often tried to figure out why it seems like these dark foreboding you know like you think of snow you think of norway and sweden and like these death metal bands and they seem to all come from like cold weather places even seattle like grunge that was you know that that type of thing like always raining you can't go outside do you think that attracts the uh, the heavy metal fan i've never thought about it that way and i would say no because you know mexico and south america love metal and florida has got a huge death metal thing and of course it was big in i mean the 80s all of that whole massive hair metal thing from about 83 to 91 is all california based but i think that the thing that attracts people to metal is i always liken it to the idea of imagine a bunch of guys like crowding around a hot car with the hood open and listening to that engine purr you're seeing a machine in action like it's impressive sound whether you like it or not it's well crafted and put together and you can't ignore it it does sound like a finely tuned hot car and what was your car yeah what was your car of choice in the 80s what were you driving well first i had the hand-me-down 72 mustard colored toyota corolla mustard is always a good choice baby mustang they were called the uh, toyota Celicas from 1977 the fastback right it was a nice car Mm -hmm. it was the baby mustang it looked like a little classic mustang uh when i got out of university first off i just went and bought a nice sports car essentially it was uh it was a 1985 toyota supra six cylinder so bought that in hamilton drove it right across the country and worked in vancouver with that until yeah. i found out it wasn't very good in slush and rain and stuff because i had big kind of summer slicks on it and i traded in for a mazda 626 which was much more conservative but it was actually <laughs> a, a better car and, uh, now i've got a little uh cooper mini little uh, five five door white Cooper Mini. Dave, you asked about the car. It was your car of choice. I want to know what got you into, what was the first band? What got you into to metal? What drew you in? Wow. I, I would say the first stuff was not metal. I didn't know about metal, but it sounded heavy enough. So that would have been like um, Steppenwolf Gold, the Columbia Record Club thing. So I would have been six, maybe seven. Did you submit and, a penny, uh, the Columbia Record thing? Did you... Did you put in your yeah, name? And, and... Yeah, we did do that uh, <laughs> okay. briefly. So, so it was it was Steppenwolf Gold, and it was CCR Pendulum, Three Dog Night, the Double Live album, right? All around the world, or it's called. And, and you know, when I think back, it's like there are certain things about metal that you don't really think are the main things about metal, but it was there, and that's the extreme vocal of John Fogerty and the extreme vocal mm-hmm. of John Kay. But then quickly discovered Sabbath, Zeppelin, Nazareth, Deep Purple, all that stuff immediately after basically got really really heavy into music and knowing a lot about it at at around nine ten years old so 72 73 74 for me and then everything from there on until about 1979 we had a mathematical system to measure the heaviness of, of everything and the heaviness is all that mattered we would get on the phone with our buddies and say it's 10 songs it's a seven out of nine it's uh eight songs it's a five out of seven uh, ah, it sucked. You know, it, it's nine songs. 
it's a two out of six. So there were lousy goods, lousies, and so-sos. So-sos, so-sos canceled out. Really goods was the heaviest. And you just go over on the phone and it's like, here's what it is. <laughs> so it's like we were we were absolutely militant about everything had to be heavy. I imagine that the Sunset Boulevard bands, the, the, the metal bands, were not metaled at all to you. The, the poisons and the warrants and the rats. I oh, no, loved all that stuff. Did not you? But with, how high would they rate? How high would a... Uh, would warrant love, love the new wave of British heavy metal. Loved thrash when it started. Thrash started the same time as hair metal. Loved most of those hair metal bands. Okay, you know, especially the early ones. So I would have been twenty in '83. So it was all, you know, perfectly in love with Quiet Riot and Dawkins and Great White and Rat. Those ones to start off with. Twisted Sister, even though they're from the East Coast. I wasn't a huge Poison fan or Cinderella fan, and I hate Bon Jovi. I've always hated everything they've ever done, but. Loved when Aerosmith was that way. Guns N' Roses was great. You know, I did a book, the big book of hair metal, actually. And uh, I, I ended it uh, when the Nirvana album came out. But I, I kind of wished I went a year beyond because my favorite hair metal albums all seem to be like from 1990 or 91 or 92, like Badlands, Love, Hate, Mr. Big. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the better stuff was when they kind of looked over the, their shoulder and said, we all got to try harder, mm-hmm. you know. If, even if we're going to stay in this, we all got to try way, way harder than we've been doing. As soon as, you know, the early Nirvana and early Soundgarden came out and all the excitement level went down, I did a podcast episode myself called Go to Vancouver and Try Harder. So that's when you got Whitesnake albums that tried harder, Motley Crue albums, Aerosmith albums, Scorpions albums, Bon Jovi albums. Everybody made that pilgrimage and said in 1991, like, if we're going to keep doing this, we got to be the best version of this we've ever been. Okay, well, you mentioned your podcast. It's History in Five Songs, and you touch on a lot of different things. I, recently, you had five songs about radio. I couldn't name one of these albums, five solo albums by drummers, and I didn't know any. I'm not familiar with any of these these albums. I didn't hear the podcast, but are any of those good? Well, let's see. So in that one, I had Bill Ward. Bill Ward is an amazing, amazing artist. People don't realize how good he is. He basically only has three solo albums spread out over a ton of time. But he's almost like the gothic heavy metal Roger Waters. He sings great. He writes great, great lyrics. What else would have I even had in there? I know there's some really bad You had Clark Kent, Away From Home. You know that. That's Stuart Stuart Copeland's solo album. First one, Clark Kent. Oh, okay. So it oh, sounds like a police album. It's really good. Oh. Really, really good. I remember, yeah. Yeah. Oh, might have to look into that. Jerry Gaskell, Sandy. Yeah, so that's King's X. King's that's X, okay. Yeah. Um, I'm a very talented drummer, but talented songwriter? Can he... Pretty singer, much. I can mean, he sing? I, I wouldn't have gone. I wouldn't go overboard and say his. I mean, Ty Tabor and Doug Pinnock from that band have done way more and way better. But he, yeah, he's a writer. He's a singer. All that stuff. Sure. Okay. Yeah, Roger Taylor from Queen, Airheads. I don't remember that. Yeah, his first two solo albums were really good, Fun in Space and Strange Frontiers. And then he's done a whole lot after that. He had a band called The Cross, and he's a great writer and singer. He was a great writer even in, in Queen. In Queen he and, was, yeah. Got great drum sounds and cool cool drum ideas. So, yeah, he was, uh, he was a good drummer artist. No doubt that these were amazing drummers. Like, yeah, Bill Bruford, or, or just called Bruford, back to the beginning. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. Something, so it was obviously a topic that was worth looking into. 
Yeah, just just barely though, right? I, mean, I didn't have a lot more than that. A lot I love of these ones I do these these examples of. I have like thirty five examples, and I rattle them off in the honorable mentions. But sometimes it does fizzle out. So. <laughs> we've talked metal. We've talked this podcast. Now let's talk Bowie at seventy five. Right after the break. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Martin Popoff. All right. Are you properly warmed up? Have we warmed you up? Are you, 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 sure. you ready to talk about it? We started you off with metal and you said you've been working on this. Bowie at 75. Bowie would have been 75 this year. And when we got this book, I gasped. It was beautiful. It is beautiful. And it's just, uh, it's just a work of art. Uh, so first of all, congratulations on getting this thing out. It's gorgeous. And I think... Uh, any Bowie fan's going to love this. Bowie at 75, you took on 75 different topics, including all his albums and significant areas. So I think we're going to touch on a number of those little uh, touchstones that you mentioned in the book. All right. Yeah. I'm uh, nervous. You're nervous. <laughs> because, you know, I, I don't keep all this knowledge in my head, and it's now written maybe a year ago or so, and I haven't, I haven't studied up, so I, I just I just hope I don't I, I don't no, disappoint you in my trivia not being up. It's like riding a bike here. You'll, you'll, it'll come back. First of all, we were talking metal, but we're going to Bowie. What is metal about Bowie, or what attracted you to, to Bowie? Oh, I, I love a, a lot of good rock music. I love I, punk, prog, stones. I guess I love a lot of classic rock, but I've been a Bowie fan also. Well, since the, since the militant part about being a metalhead was over around 1979. So getting the end of high school and getting into university and all that sort of stuff. There's nothing really, there's nothing metal about Bowie. There's some pretty extreme and, and dark records and stuff. And, and I think it is one of these artists, you know, famously the, the non-metal artists that metalheads all love the most is Pink Floyd. But mm -hmm. uh, people love Bowie as well. He is a perennial for people. I mean, is an almost uncategorizable. You mentioned briefly that you wrote this a long time ago. Well, relatively. For me, I write very fast. So a long time ago, you know, I, I wrote it about a year ago. Oh, okay. I've written four other books with this publisher. I've actually done about a dozen books for this publisher, right? How long does something like this take you to write? Each event is, you know, not more than two pages, even with photos for the most part, but there's a lot of information packed in there. Yeah, I mean, usually on average, a book that I write is 80,000 words. A long book is 110,000, 120,000, but this book is 45,000, maybe 48. I can't remember exactly. And, and, you know, the other two that I've done like this are in that range too, 45,000. So it's, so it's almost like half a book for me. And it is nice because it is so compartmentalized into these topics, these 75 career highlights or milestones that you can, you know, you can check out for a day or two and then come back and do two more entries. And it's like, and you know, it's basically, oh, I had a good day today, wrote three entries. Or then it's like, oh, geez, I haven't written an entry for four days, right? You know, you, you feel like you're getting off the bike but you know a, a, a good day you could you could definitely knock out three entries in a day 
and there's only 75 entries. So when you do the math and, and you, you sort of, you know, hit yourself in the head and say, you know, when I'm really working, this ain't going to take very long. Right. So you just knuckle down and get it done. So I, I'm, I'm very fast. I mean, I've, I've done 115 books. I'm pretty fast at this. And I think that's a pretty important thing. Uh, I've had these conversations with authors. Have you ever heard that term stone cutter? Mm. You, you can't be a stone cutter and get a lot of books out, right? You have to write fast. Well, one of the wonderful things about the book are the pictures, actually. How do you get access to all these photos? They're really cool. I, my favorite, I think, is the one when you first open it and Bowie's getting out of the limo. And usually you see fans that are screaming or, you know, like, oh, my God, it's Bowie. But everyone in that photo, like a gape, just like he's real, <laughs> like yeah. the alien has landed. It's it's really quite a stirring photo. Like, that's my favorite. But how did you get access to to all these photos? Yeah, what I love to death about this publisher and my editor that I work with, Dennis Pernew, he cares so much and he knows a lot about music. This is the one situation I have across any publishers I've done. I literally turn in the text and they do the rest. Essentially, Dennis has all these arrangements with photographers and the photo agencies, and they have top flight designers. I mean, with the whole, th this thing blew me away when I saw it at first, right? Mm -hmm. The whole, right. you know, plastic yes. with felt and screen printing and all that. So the designs are always brilliant. And literally, my job is like, Dennis, here's your word file. And uh, everything else gets done. You know, I go in and, and help write the captions or at least edit the captions mm -hmm. and all that. And at this point, you know, gr granted, Dennis did get a little busy at one point and said, can you go into this photo agency and pick a few things out and stuff like that? But yeah, the, the beauty of this situation is I don't know how all this gets paid for, but, you know, <laughs> it does get paid for. And the end product is the most beautiful end products. You know, all the books I've done with these guys. Well, he does a great job, too, then. I mean, that the photos yeah. are beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And hunting down all the, um, you know, memorabilia and stuff, he'll find the super fans who can do scans and stuff. I mean, I remember even on some of the old books, Dennis would just go on eBay and buy up memorabilia to have a good, good right? piece yeah. to take a shot of and stuff. So yeah, it's really cool. Good for them. That would be a fun job too. <laughs> <laughs> when did you discover Ziggy Stardust and I mean, I think you you were probably too young to uh, to like to go to those shows. I'm not a big fan of that album. Never okay. was. Never. I hated that look. I thought it was a stupid look. I don't think it's <laughs> a fashion genius or anything like that. The mullet and the dye and the uh, everything about it is creepy to me. I uh, have a very contrarian view. We also have a YouTube channel called The Contrarians where we talk about. Um, you know, contrarian albums or contrarian views on albums. My favorite Bowie album is Scary Monsters, but that is is a particular album to me that always rubbed me the wrong way. I never liked the production of it. I don't like the songs. I don't like the kind of scrappy rock and rolliness of it. Never liked the image or the whole story. It's probably the highest rated Bowie album, but it's pretty pretty low on on my list. You know, I like Young Americans more. I like Hunky Dory more. Okay. Um, and then I really like the later period, right? After. Like, okay, so you're a pop guy. You kind of like the pop Bowie stuff. What about uh, Mick Ronson? What does he do for you? I mean, that's a, that's a rock and roll guitarist. Come on. Nothing. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'll tell you my funny Mick Ronson stories. I, I've never understood what the big deal was about Mick Ronson. And, and I had a, a sit down in a hotel room interview with Ian Asprey from The Cult. And we started talking about Bowie after. And, and I told him that. He almost got like mad at me. <laughs> I cannot, what are you talking about? Mick Ronson's just a god. And I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't. I Tell me the parts to go listen to because uh -huh. I've never heard anything 
anything that I thought was any big deal about what he was doing. So no, I'm I'm not a Mick Ronson guy. Either. Really? See, I I feel like he was uh, like Joe Perry in a way, like not a phenomenal yeah. guitarist, but you pair him with Steve Tyler. You know, th- these guys paired together really created something special. Do you I feel? Don't know. Tell, tell me the part. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'd love to know the five beautiful, genius, tasteful, awesome parts of Mick Ronson to go listen to because I've never heard I'm not here to change your mind. It's not. That's a different podcast. So you're more of a Carlos Alomar fan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, although it's not even so much that. It's the vision. It's the production. I guess I'm more of a Brian Eno fan. I'm more of a Robert Fripp fan, frankly. I mean, the Robert Fripp stuff is mm-hmm. when I think of guitarists, that's what I think of the most. But I, I really don't think of guitarists when I think of Bowie very much. Yeah. I think of him and his lyrics and the, and the image and the songwriting and the vocals Rarely do I really think about the guitars, but Carlos Alomar definitely deserves a ton of credit for, for creativity on those great albums and the kind of the Berlin period and mm. all that kind of stuff. I, I don't think it's particularly the guitar that stands out. It's, it's Bowie and it's Eno. Dave, that is an interesting question. Well, Mick Ronson, like we know him as a, an important figure. Mm-hmm. I also didn't see it like a Joe Perry and, and uh, Steven Tyler, or as I said, Billy Idol and Steve Stevens. <laughs> Maybe all right. Well, maybe not, you not, had maybe you had to be there. Integral. I I feel like you're both wrong, and uh, I I would kick you off this podcast immediately if I could, but I'm not. It might have been one of those things like in '72 to see them. If you saw Bowie at Santa Monica Civic with Mick Ronson and them interacting together, I feel like that would have just blown your 15 year old mind. If you know that was you know in your wheelhouse, like at that time, I don't know. Like maybe you were a little too cynical when you went back. At, you know, Think you just of got- all those guys in those clothes, right? Think of Woody and Trevor Boulder and all that. I mean, they just look god awful, horrible. Right? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, but that they, was they seventy-two. Like that's what that's what they're supposed they to be. Like Slade, they looked like sweet. They looked like Roxy music at their absolute worst. You know, and people just go on and on about all oh, the brilliance of that whole concept and the, and the you know the, the fashion sense of bowie and all this it's like that's the worst thing he ever did fashion wise he has, he has 20 things he did that were cooler than that so. okay and dave i think you might have been more transfixed with bowie watching than paying as close attention to mick ronson no i like that crunchy guitar i loved i loved 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 that stuff but we have our guest so we have to respect him and and his and his uh, very uh, you know his contrarian opinion. I, I, let's talk about cities then and influence on Bowie because he lived in different cities. I mean you know Philly. He had Young Americans and of course you know his Berlin period in New York City. What was your favorite Bowie city era? Let's just say. Boy, uh, you know that's an interesting question. I mean uh, the first one that would obviously come to mind for me would be Berlin because that's my whole period that I like the most. And Mm -hmm. I love that we got two great Iggy pop albums out of that time as well. And a lot of creativity and a lot of really interesting, 
you know, production techniques. We got Robert Fripp. And then really we saw those production techniques kind of get reinvented and the inspiration moving forward into the likes of the next period of Genesis and Peter Gabriel. I think they led to my favorite David Bowie albums as well coming out of that. But, you know, New York as well. You, you think of the, the quality of, you know, The Next Day and Black Star and all mm-hmm. that. So he, he was still creatively energized, you know, by living in that tight space with all these creative people around it. And what was it about Berlin that you think affected his sound or changed his sound? They love that whole decadent, uh, you know, thinking about 20s Berlin thing. Iggy was there. They're living in an apartment together. They're trying to get clean. So, you know, they're working pretty hard. He always worked hard anyways. Brian Eno, that was super important. The darkness and the um, the communism threat, all that sort of stuff all mixed up together. It's just, I, I think they, they considered a very artistic city. But yeah, just living together in that apartment and going to the studio and working, it just seemed like a really cool, creative place. I, I guess they still sort of had their their drug demons and all that sort of stuff, but I guess they're away from most of their own hangers on and mm. uh, distractions, you know, and, and those Brian Eno albums, just the ones with the vocals, I, I could care less about listening to paint dry on music for airports and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> but here come the warm jets and another green world and, and taken tiger mountain and before after. So there's four of them, right? I, I probably like every one of those four albums better than any Bowie album, except for maybe scary monsters. Okay. I mean, and, love those records. and what is it about Scary Monsters that, uh, that makes it your ultimate Bowie album? Lots of Robert Fripp, lots of great songs. Side two is one of the greatest sides of all time by anybody. I just love side two. Teenage Wildlife's got one of my favorite Robert Fripp solos of all time. Scream Like a Baby, Kingdom Come, Because You're Young, It's No Game Part Two, It's No Game Part One on side one. I love the song Scary Monsters. It's got great sounds, like really cool, interesting electronic sounds and stuff, but it's it's way more songful than the whole Berlin period, but it's probably as artistic and strange. Yeah, Ashes to Ashes I love. Uh, fashion I don't like very much. Um, I find it kind of sing-songy and and, you know, ch- childishy of melody, I suppose. Up the Hill Backwards is okay as well. Yeah, it's just chock full of great sounds. Uh, you know, I like Lodger quite a bit too. I've been playing playing Lodger a lot, but Lodger's much more eclectic. I'd say with Bowie quite often, it's the fact that when those melodies come through, when there's lots of good, strong melodies and good songwriting. That's why I like Hours. You're not supposed to like the Hours album, but it's I love the Hours album. It's okay. acoustic and soft and yeah, perfect. So do you have a, like with metal, you have a, how metal is this metal song? How Bowie is, what is a, a 10 Bowie song that combines all elements of Bowie? That, wow. Or that if you were going to teach a, uh, you know, a 10 year old, what, uh, what Bowie is like, and well, play him one song, one, one song. One or, song. I would say heroes. Heroes is such a massive yeah. hit, such a gorgeous song. Wasn't even a big hit at the time. You know, co-written by Brian Eno. 
huge melody, great sounds. Uh, yeah, Robert Fripp solo, I believe. Yes, Robert Fripp, I'm pretty sure. Let me, let me look at it. I'm pretty sure that's an iconic Fripp solo. Sometimes you got to be careful because, you know, you never know where when uh, somebody's playing like Robert Fripp, right? That, that can happen too. Yeah, it is Robert Fripp. And Carlos Alomar is on it too on rhythm guitar. Nice. But yeah, George Murray, Dennis Davis. You, you don't think of these guys. They aren't famous guys, right? Um, but yeah, they're on the most iconic Bowie material. So yeah, pretty cool. When you really think about it, it's probably hard to pick like a consummate Bowie song compared to any other artist when you think about how many times he's pivoted, as we like to say. Yeah. Oh, Holly has a hard time picking one thing for anything. So that's <laughs> just, that's just Holly. I, There's no one thing I, 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 As I was asking the question, I saw uh, Holly's eyes pop out like, no, there is no one song. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, maybe Martin has one song. Maybe he has the ability to do that. <laughs> but that's, it's different. A favorite is different than what is a, a quintessential Joey sure. song. Yeah, I don't know how you would choose that. You know, you know, another great one is Modern Love, right? I mean, you think of that, it, it's almost like this is as famous and most excited anybody's ever going to be about David Bowie. There's some crappy songs on that album, though. I mean, I, I really, I've always loved that album. And, and to me, it's, it's no, no contest for anything else like, you know, that compared to the next two, you know, the trilogy of commercial albums, right? But that song in particular, it just seems kind of smart and sophisticated and, and good chord changes, but it's still poppy. It seems better than most of what's on there. You know, like I say, it it's, it is the first song in the album, right? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I, this is the one, this was my entry. So basically it's the first song on the, on the album that is the most universally loved by the world. And it was a massive tour. It was a super excitement around the tour. I saw that tour. I saw it in Vancouver, the first concert they ever had in BC place stadium mm. when they built the brand new stadium with mm. the, uh, you know, the inflatable roof thing. It's kind of like mini, uh, Minneapolis. It was three bands that I love. Uh, it was the tubes on outside inside followed by Peter Gabriel on security Mm. Followed by David Bowie. Like, talk wow. about. Oh, that's wow, a good. Yeah. A that, all right. That like, might beat my uh, Go-Go's and Madness opening for Bowie. <laughs> I love I love Madness, too. But uh, yeah. but imagine Peter Gabriel on security at the very right, know, right. apex of his power, backing up Bowie, you know, touring the Let's Dance record. Wow. Okay. So what about Stevie Ray Vaughan? Is it because of Stevie Ray Vaughan that helps make, mo- that elevates modern love? God, I, I I wouldn't say so. I mean, okay. I, I, again, I don't even think about I don't even think about guitar when I think about. Really, it. I like that intro.
it's not that big a deal, number one. And number two, it sounds nothing like what you think of Stevie Ray Vaughan, right? Just the so. brilliance of Stevie Ray. There's What about the solo in China Girl? Does that do anything for you? It, it's <laughs> my head. I mean, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Oh, all right. You're yeah. killing me, Martin. You're killing me. <laughs> China Girl is a great song, too. And, and, you know, it was great on the Iggy album. Of too, course, yes. Yeah, that's another really good one on that album, for sure. Another intriguing thing about Bowie is when he's on TV. I just recently... I actually do have the Dick Cavett box set. He had artists on his show. Yeah, it's the 70s, so there's there's awkward silences yeah. and there's nervousness. Like, I was watching Bowie, and as you mentioned, he's playing around with this cane, and Dick Cavett's like, what are you painting down there? And, he, you know, he's just kind of fiddling around with his, with his cane. It's very intriguing in that we didn't really get to see, we didn't have MTV or anything, we, especially someone like Bowie. Like, who is this guy? What And, and here he is sitting next to Dick Cavett trying to, explain himself having a hard time doing it but it's still intriguing i love it uh, is the offstage bowie um likely to, to surprise people i have had the weirdest reactions from people who know you're going to be on some of them say they'd be scared to sit and talk with you mm. uh some people said you would bite my neck very peculiar uh, kind of thing which what you want really isn't it and what do you think i'm like well, I've only met you over the phone and a little bit backstage, and, and to me you seemed like, um, I hope this doesn't insult you, um, a working yeah. actor. Uh, I <laughs> that's mean, right, that's very good. You know, mm. I mean, what are you drawing? It's <laughs> 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 therapeutic. No, you know, there, um, some people thought, uh, there's a lady who said, I, I don't know if I'd, be, if I'd want to meet him, he would make me very nervous. I have a feeling he's into black magic and that sort of thing. Oh, and, and other people see you as just a very skillful performer who changes from time to time from one thing to another. Yeah. Well, both of that is... <laughs> All of these. <laughs> You'll buy that? Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, to see these guys in motion just sitting down in a chair talking, I guess, is kind of a rare thing. You, you can only kind of see that on TV. That's uh, that's a really good point about that. Yeah, that's an, that's an edgy interview. And on, on TV, I think my favorite thing is is the Saturday Night Live, Man Who Sold the World mm-hmm. and All. Wow, you know? That whole thing. Again, here's 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 like a really cool fashion thing that's going on. And Klaus Nomi and mm-hmm. his other buddy and, mm-hmm. and all that. Like that was, and with the little dog, right? They had a little... The, the little yeah. Little, thing man yeah so i mean bowie's done a, a lot of amazing amazing things that way in terms of stage presentation of fashion and that one was was a really cool creepy artistic thing and the big crosby christmas thing that was pretty cool too. can you talk about how that all came together that awkward moment yeah there was the story about how when him and angela came in they were all freaky looking and stuff like scared the you know, the bejesus out of everybody with how wild they were, right? And they had to super tame them down and it almost didn't happen. And Bing Crosby dies shortly after, right? So he was mm-hmm. pretty sick. But professionally, they just seemed to pull it together like a couple of pros yeah. and it, it comes off pretty good. Can it be? Years from now, perhaps we'll see. Our See the day of glory. See the day when of living peace. So Well, let's talk about the two loves in his life. You had Angela, and then you had Amon. 
what was their influence over the music? Or I mean, I, I think Angela seemed to be weird just to be weird, and Iman was very kind of stabilizing for him, it seemed like. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of Angela getting involved in the business meetings and all this fracas with Tony DeFries and all that. So so there's a there's a couple of beats along the book. You know, it's 75 different beats. So I, I recall there were a few times when Tony and Angela sort of come up and they had their son and all that. And and obviously it was a was a really tumultuous relationship you know the above board sleeping around thing obviously psychologically got to both of them eventually and they had their acrimonious you know breakup and uh and all that so yeah completely different from iman he he was he was absolutely smitten with uh, iman immediately and at that point i guess he he was more or less settling down it was cool that she was she she kind of had a good head on her shoulders and was a business person and and all that as well it's possible that if if his uh if his um you know domestic life wasn't so it it seemed to be pretty solid and stable later on we might not have even gotten as much music as we did get in the end because there's surprisingly quite a few records at the end yeah you know i loved her i loved them together and it was stabilizing and i wanted to know more and it left me wanting more to know more about her and about the relationship i want to think it was she was a good influence <laughs> yeah there's a lot out there i mean that one of the challenges of this book was was basically you know i i had to constantly check my word count as I'm going along. So every, every one of these 75 things had to be within kind of a range to make yeah. sure I wasn't over, you know, overreaching and getting over and above. So as you get going on a topic and you're seeing all this research and stuff, it's like the challenge often with, with these things is how, how do I squeeze this into yeah. 500 words or 700 words, right? How you even chose the events, you know, you, you the events were, were great, but I'm sure there were many more. Well, it was fun. I, that, that is always the fun part. I, I, I always get mad at bands when they say, oh, we have such a hard, we had a, such a hard time getting the name of our band or naming our album. It's like, dude, sit me down for half an hour. I'll give you 75 <laughs> names in half an hour that are awesome. I love that kind of, that kind of thing. So, so when, when these projects first get put together, I mean, that's my favorite part of the whole thing. It's like, oh yeah, 75. Okay, let's work this out. Let's, let's figure out which ones. And then, and then what happens is you get down to really, there's only five or six or seven that are up for any dispute at all. And I talk with Dennis and he swaps two in and two out and whatever. And then, and then we're done sort of thing. So yeah, no, that's, that's the fun part and the, and the easy part. And, you know, and sometimes with these books, it will come down to with a couple that I've worked on one, it comes down to a little bit, Dennis saying, yeah, that's pretty good. I can't get any pictures to support that that no. beat at all, right? And it's like if you can't get any pictures, that that kind of makes him want to lean towards possibly moving that one out for something else. Yeah, it makes sense because the pictures are crucial here in this book. As you know, we hit seventy five. It was kind of easy at seventy five. We got Black Star. I mean, he kind of orchestrated his perfect exit. It really was a work of art, just the way it was all kind of set up and actually kind of kept under wraps like his health condition and I guess it was just Tony Visconti who knew and had to keep this secret I still love Black Star it sounds like New York City it's uh it's, you know but and it's just a, a new sound from Bowie as his final farewell there's so many elements that make it special do you what do, what do you think make it special for you I okay, love there. it I mean the albums leading up to it had a variety of things on it where you just thought these are these are great sort of individual song experiments and it's all very cool but there was nothing really like you know a unifying direction behind them heathen next day that kind of thing you know ours had had a bit of a theme to it in that 
it was uncommonly mellow and melodic. But Black Star, what's really cool about Black Star, I think, is number one, it sounds like a Krautrock album. So it, it literally sounds like that old German 70s stuff in a way. So it's kind of like jazzy, but it's also avant-garde jazzy, but it's also kind of, uh, you know, in a rock and roll context. But the other cool thing, I think, is that it's using all the normal instrumental tools, like conservative instrumentation. There's there's not a lot of crazy ear candy on it, yet it sounds really odd and foreign, different. Like I say, kraut rock, but beautifully recorded kind of jazzy kind of intimate at the same time it's a little profane in places like it's it's very artistic it's it's crazy artsy which was great as well it's it's dark the packaging was so neat the, the mm-hmm. way that all kind of worked together yeah i i think it, it was a masterpiece to go out on on the day of execution on the day of Do you have an opinion about Black Star? Oh, I agree with everything he says. It's <laughs> I I remember listening to it the day it came out, like and just like wow, this is amazing. I can't. This is. I hope he tours with this. He's like I I want to hear. I want more of this. And then uh, and apparently he did have plans to. You know, he he wanted to get another album out, but that that just didn't come to fruition. Yeah, we got uh, essentially an EP after that, right? Of uh, I can't remember how many more songs, but there were more songs. Yeah, uh, that that happens. So, uh, I mean, quite a catalog, and and you know, of course, this book is just uh, phenomenal. I love that you do. This is like your thing. This is uh, like these coffee table book. It's heavy. It's substantial. It's got some amazing photos in it. I love it all. I think I have nine finished books that are still to come out. <laughs> Stephen King so, is what you are. I yeah, tell you. It's not going to look like I'm slowing down, but I am because I haven't written anything for a long time now. Yeah, I, I don't have much on my plate. <laughs> All right. Well, so is drawing going to be, is it going to become the thing? Yeah, painting, painting and drawing for sure. Yeah, I'm already mm. doing that and, and selling prints of them. And I've made little collector cards of them. I've, I've done 50 rock star portraits. And I've also previously done uh, uh, these fake ads that I come up with. I'm a huge fan of old record ads. So I, I combine elements and make these funny ads. And uh, and I did a bunch of kind of weird occulty books for this Blue Oyster Cult Imaginos project with uh, you know a lot of a lot of kind of witchcrafty occulty things in there. So those were all just pencil illustrations. So I did 39 illustrations for that book. Um, so yeah, I, I can see getting way back into art again. I was I was pretty big into art in the 90s, like proper big gallery kind of painting stuff um but i, I kind of let it die and uh and it's the one thing i want to do the most it's more important to me than writing any of these books so oh can we see it on your are they on your website yeah so the old paintings from the 90s the real art is at martinpopoff.com mm-hmm. the all of my portraits all 50 are at artpal.com you know under my gallery just put in my name and then 
all of the ads that I did that I also did prints of and half of the portraits can be seen at martinpopoff.ca. You were talking about ads. One of the fun things in the Bowie book, there's one of a, like a comic strip type thing where a woman like at the end of the night is trying to engage her husband or someone in, in the conversation as she's taking off her clothes for the, for the evening or something. And she's trying to talk Bowie. It, it was just very odd, but very, I guess, 70s. We love the ads, always had dozens and dozens and dozens of ads in all the books. And in this Bowie book, probably, I, I would guess there's probably 60 ads in there. Yeah. I mean, we, we yeah. I just love those things. And that's why I like rescuing the text from ads and then doing a colorized version of, and putting in a different piece of artwork, you know, like we did a Black yeah. Sabbath one where there was this ad with just text and I, I superimposed it onto like a Civil War ship. You know, things like that. I would love to do whole books of these ads and, and comment on them and stuff. It's one of my projects oh, that nice. I've been talking. But literally across all my books, I would I would bet there's probably pictures of fifteen hundred ads mm -hmm. easily. Oh, that's I, that's I, fun. That would be a fun project. It is. It's something I do miss. That was like uh you know, yeah. when you flip through a magazine through your circus and Rolling Stone yeah. and then you know, like see, seeing whatever new project like, you know, what what whatever band new band is up on the on the horizons that you got to check out i always out. refer to my very first time when i was blown away and in love with the ads was when i because i subscribed to circus in 1975 and i remember getting one and opening it to a page and seeing a black sabbath sabotage ad yeah. and it was like these guys in like 1940s suits standing around a crashed train those That's... are the best ads when you get extra visuals that have nothing to do with the right. ad but you know, as a kid of 12, you love this band and you open a page to that and it's for an album you didn't know existed yet, you know, a brand new Black Sabbath album and it's just this really, so I loved seeing that. Or those simple Kiss ads where they were always like, picture the album cover, it's coming. Right. You know, that's all I would say, right? <laughs> be, be, before videos, this was our video because, you know, that's, that's all we had <laughs> were magazines and just, you know, talking among ourselves, trying to figure out who these bands are. But seeing those ads really, it made me think a lot about how much the music industry, the record industry has changed over the years. I mean, those were, I mean, show those to our kids and they won't even know what they are. Yeah. And then as you get into the 80s and stuff, usually the creativity went down. Yeah. Like they, they, they were just mm -hmm. like, here's some text, here's a picture of the album cover, here's a picture of the band live. But a lot of those 70s ones had all sorts of different mm -hmm. storylines and the images that they would put into them. Well, that's because, yeah, we had videos in the 80s and in 70s we did not have, 60s and 70s didn't have that. How are you going to explain this band? They're not getting played on the radio or, you know, we need to visually try and describe what this band is like, yeah. what their sound is like. And so, yeah, like a train crash. Perfect for Black Sabbath. <laughs> you know? Okay, I get okay. it. I'm in. Congratulations again on this book. Uh, I, apparently, we'll be talking to you maybe again because you uh, you got like <laughs> like a dozen or something coming out. Who knows? You say nine. Well, and, you yeah, say nine by, by the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah the, it's, it's possible with this publisher because they will be like this. So, yeah, there's, there's four more. So. <laughs> It's like sausages with you. Just keep pumping them out. <laughs> and, and we're working on and we're working on batting ideas back and forth on things that relate to the 1975, uh, you know, 50th anniversary. Sure, right so, it's all coming. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I look forward to yeah the <laughs> born to run out at 50. We'll see. Well, thank you very much, Martin. I really appreciate that. We'll uh, we'll look forward cool. to seeing you at the uh, the next Pantheon Zoom meeting, and uh, you know. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks, yeah, Martin. Thanks, All yeah. right. Thanks. See you later. Take care. Bye-bye.
All right, so a talk with Martin Popoff of the Bowie at 75 book. I thought he was just going to love, love, love everything that Bowie ever touched. Apparently, not so the case. I think that's good. I think that gives him some extra added credibility, right? <laughs> In your yeah, book, sure. Although he was, he's the contrarian. So I, sh- I should have said we had a nice talk with contrarian Martin Popoff. Um, maybe you're the contrarian. I am not the contrarian. You're the contrarian. <laughs> No, I think you're the contrarian. Oh, what a, okay. Um, but he, can you believe he has written, did he, 115 books? Something like that. It's, That's a lot of books. Why, how many books have we written? We've written the book on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. We Figuratively, have, not literally. No, we have literally done zero. Literally. I don't know if so, you know. <laughs> yeah. Shall we start? Shall we write our first book? Okay. You pick a topic and we'll we'll get into it. Martin knows people. No, but you I'm, should definitely check us out on social media at WDDIM Podcast and on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. That's where we're publishing our videos. So check those out. A lot of fun. Good stuff. Again, great talk with Martin Popoff. Thank you so much to Martin for setting that all up. Big, big, big thank you to Steve Roth of the Quarter Group who sent us this book, this gorgeous book that is out now. And I highly recommend you pick it up. Or give it as a gift, or get it for yourself and give it as a gift. It's gorgeous. If you love David Bowie as much as we do, you're going to love digging into this and just putting it on your coffee table and digging through it. We're gonna we're gonna recommend it. We're gonna keep recommending it. Okay. So, yeah. He's not paying us. Feel like it's enough. He didn't pay us. I mean, he gave us his free book, but he did. Not, he's not paying us to say how wonderful this is. So, congratulations both to Martin and Steve Roth for uh, a wonderful coffee table book. And congratulations to you, Holly, for achieving another episode with me and surviving that. And, all that entails. This to you too. All right. Well, let's wrap this up then. So until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.